You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 98, by Rudolf Steiner. It is the listener notes of 18 lectures, not direct stenographic reports, uh, entitled Nature and Spirit Beings, Their Activity in Our Visible World, translated by Christian van Arnhem. This is Lecture 2, given in Vienna on the 7th of November, 1907, entitled Esoteric Development and Supersensory Knowledge. I would like to speak to you today about an extension of the subject from the day before yesterday, about inner or esoteric development and supersensory knowledge. In doing so, it will be necessary for us to assume that we are familiar with what we looked at the day before yesterday and to build, so to speak, on what passed through our souls at that time. You have seen from what we discussed there that the development of the human being is not something which may be taken, let us say, as a joke. It is not something which may be taken lightly. On the other hand, it must be emphasized again and again that we must not speak of the dangers of occult development in the usual trivial way. The dangers are great. But the way in which these dangers are usually spoken of is not correct, and we will have to achieve clarity about a great many things. First of all, let us get a more precise idea for ourselves of what happens to someone who has developed through some kind of exercises, let us say through exercises along the lines as indicated in the last lecture, and let us compare them with a person who is not in such a schooling and lives as everyone else does in everyday life. We obtain a conscious understanding in this context when we start, for example, from what we know about the ordinary state of sleep. From the previous lecture you gathered what the astral body of the human being actually does during the night in the ordinary state of sleep. When a person sleeps, the physical body and the etheric body lie in bed. The so-called astral body, with the I, capital, is out of them. It has removed itself, has left them. And when the astral body is not inside the physical body, when it is not observing and contemplating the outer world through its tools, the sense organs, when it is not occupied by the movements and the work of the physical body, then the astral body can take on quite a different task. It removes the fatigue from both. The removal of this fatigue is its task, and the clairvoyant can see how the astral body works all night long on the physical and etheric body from the outside in order to repair them, so that in the morning the human being feels the restoration of their energy as being refreshed. That is why sleep is such a good doctor, and why a person loses so much who does not have healthy and sufficient sleep. Many things that look like illnesses are only disorders, in the physical and etheric body. These disorders remain when the astral body is not able to remove them. 
but it is able to remove these disorders when it is not in the body, as it is in the waking state, but when it is outside the body. Where then does the astral body get those powers and abilities with which it repairs, so to speak, the physical body? In the last public lecture, I already compared such an exit of the astral body from the physical and etheric body with a body water in a glass. If you have a thousand droplets of water in this glass, and these droplets all form a body, that is different from taking a thousand sponges and sucking up each droplet of water individually. Then you have individualized these droplets, separated them. It is the same with the astral body at night. If you all fell asleep here now, the same thing would happen as when you squeeze the sponges and make a body of water. Your astral body would leave you and join the others. But by joining together, people come into contact with those harmonious great events which are in the cosmos. Our souls return in the night to the harmony of the spheres, and from these the astral body with the eye, and that is the soul, draws the strength necessary to repair the physical body. Now, what happens to a person who is given an occult teacher and undergoes occult training? They are given certain tasks. We can only speak in broad terms about these. They are given tasks for meditation, concentration, and so on. What is the purpose of the task that the teacher gives the pupil? It has the purpose of gradually making the astral body see when it is outside the physical body during the night. In the ordinary human being, the astral body, when it is outside, is unconscious in the astral world, just as you would be unconscious in the physical world if you had no senses. If you have no senses, then the world does not exist for you. Once the person is given the guidance to awaken the powers slumbering in their soul, their astral body acquires sense organs of the spirit or soul, those organs which are called lotus flowers. They are not flowers any more than the lungs are wings. Everyone knows that the hawk has wings that look different from the lungs. Lotus flowers are organs that have a kind of circular movement. One such an organ is below the forehead, one centimeter below where the eyebrows meet in the brain. When this point is thought of intensely with the simultaneous utterance of a certain word, a kind of flash occurs, an illumination, and this is visible to the clairvoyant from the outside. The sense organ gets into a kind of revolving movement. It is described as the wheel turning, coming alive. In the ordinary average person, such an organ is not present at this point, or at most there is a trace of it. Training produces such an illumination when the astral body is out of the physical body. He gives the impression of a wheel turning, which can be observed from the outside by the clairvoyant. This wheel is called the swastika. The symbol, like real symbols in general, cannot be explained speculatively. They are not invented arbitrarily, but they are actually visible on the spiritual or astral plane. The swastika is an image of this sense organ, and all more or less ingenious explanations in the theosophical writings 
are nonsense. In theosophy, there should not be allegorical or symbolic explanations. That is what we should first discard as a habit, all speculation. All thinking about how things might be must be abandoned. It is solely a matter of penetrating the world of facts itself. Near the larynx is the sixteen-petaled lotus flower, an organ on which much, much depends in human development. Near the heart is the twelve-petaled lotus, further down is the ten-petaled one, and so on. These organs develop through the exercises which the teacher gives the pupil, just as the senses of the physical body are developed through practice, for example, through the influence of light and sound. Just consider the one as a physical, the other as a spiritual process of wholly the same duration. You must not believe that any tumultuous processes, sorcery and the like, can lead a person to develop these sense organs. It is merely intimate processes, learning within thoughts, which have the power within themselves to develop such organs. Here it is important that the person keeps learning again and again which thoughts these are, and that they think of a certain organ in the body, for example a point in the brain which lies one centimeter below where the eyebrows meet. When the person thinks of this point with a very specific sequence of words, they awaken certain faculties inside their astral body. It is all systematic and, one might say, technically determined. Some people find this extremely inappropriate for themselves. We can hear phrases over and over again which are an absurdity for the true occultist. I don't need a teacher. I must find my own inner teacher. In such talk there is, first and foremost, the greatest egoism imaginable. Then it is also nonsense. If someone were to look at geometry from this point of view, what would be the result? Everyone can find all the rules of geometry through inner development. It will take them many thousands of years, but they can find them. But is there really a need to rediscover geometry? Should we not build on what humanity has found in centuries of work and continue to build on it and benefit humanity, which has given us so much knowledge? Humanity has a right to this. Think of what we can spare humanity in devoted love of the teachers of the past. In exactly the same way, we do not seek inner development for ourselves, but as workers in the great service of humanity. There were always people who hurried ahead. We have to learn from them. And if we are afraid of bowing to authority, that is uncharitable nonsense. To work in the sense of the teachers of humanity to seek out those who can guide us. That is what is first and absolutely necessary for the occult teacher as well as the pupil. These things which the teachers tell us and which have been tested and known through centuries lure the senses out of the astral body. When a person gives occult teachings, a real teacher will not do this, then it can easily happen that they will give the pupil instructions as to how the latter may have perceptions in the astral world. We can then observe that the pupil begins to work on their astral body to draw out the sense organs, but that they thereby display much worse habits and temperamental qualities than before they became an occult pupil.
People have been surprised that in the early days of theosophy many people made incomprehensible mistakes with regard to their character. Even the minimal development of the astral body, which theosophy brought about as an elementary part of its teaching when it first became known, made quite strange phenomena happen. For example, one pupil who was a cashier ran away with money. Another did quite different things. Even people who used to be peaceful became quarrelsome. This is due to the fact that with the little bit of occult development, which flows from theosophical concepts, the bad sides of the character are pushed to the surface if nothing else happens. But no one should be afraid because of this. We should simply be aware of such things. They should be taken seriously. Let us strive through our strength of character not to fall into such delusions. It is different, however, when the pupil comes into contact with real systematic occult training. Here the work on the astral body is much more extensive, and then it is absolutely necessary that the physical and etheric bodies be offered a substitute. How do we replace that which is withdrawn from the physical and etheric body? For this it is necessary for very specific qualities to be developed in a person. It is possible to develop qualities in human nature and the human being by which the physical body and the etheric body do not need to be repaired in such an extensive way. Think of it as doing something during the day to strengthen the physical and the etheric body, to mend them so that they oscillate through their own sense and rhythm in harmony with the great cosmos. Only then are you able to use the forces for the astral body itself. And this must be done. It does not need to be done at once, but the time will come when it must be done. When the teacher says, you must concentrate your thinking, they do not mean merely ordinary thinking. When you are told you must sit down, take an ordinary thought, and reject any other thought, think it as intensely as possible with the rejection of all other thoughts, then the human being must overcome a certain inner resistance. It is this process of overcoming that is important. It is not the object that should be of interest and captivate us. It is easy, for example, to think of Napoleon, but very difficult to think of something like a match without interruption for a longer period of time. That is the essential thing. Then you will see how, after some time, you will gain a certain inner strength and security. You can already feel by inner experience whether it has had its effect. Then you have to move on to initiating actions that you certainly wouldn't have done otherwise. It may be a very insignificant action. It doesn't matter how important the action is, but it must be our own action, our very own initiative. A gentleman to whom I said this told me, after some time, that he took seven steps forward and seven steps backward in his office every day, imagining evolution and involution. Excellent. What is required is not the greatness of the action, but the very own initiative. I also spoke about this to some friends and mentioned, to give an example, that you could water flowers if you had never watered flowers. And what happened? When I visited the friends, I found them all watering flowers. That was the most wrong thing they could have done, for it was not my action they were to do, but one that was their very own, which they had found themselves. 
If you do this for a long time, you will see what an inner effect it has. These things harmonize and balance everything in the physical and in the etheric body in such a way that both resonate themselves and no longer need so much correcting, so that the astral body can withdraw a part of its forces from them. Then the human being must control themselves in relation to pleasure and grief. In ordinary life, people are subject to the slavery of feelings. They laugh when they are offered something particularly ridiculous. They cry on some sad occasion. The pupil, however, must be in control. They must not allow themselves to be controlled, but must in turn control pleasure and grief. Many think that this will make them dulled, but the reverse is the case. In this way we overcome pleasure and grief, that is, that which is egotistical pleasure and egotistical pain. We must find a way to crawl into other beings, as it were, in order to feel with them. No one should let themselves be kept from this exercise for fear of becoming dulled. They will feel with greater subtlety. A fourth exercise is the one I prefer to characterize by telling a legend. This legend is from the life of Jesus Christ. It is not found in the Bible, as many others are not. It is from the Persian. Once, when the disciples were walking with Jesus Christ, they saw the half-decayed carcass of a dead dog lying on the road. What a horrible carcass, the disciples said, and turned away in disgust. But Jesus Christ alone stopped and looked at the carcass and said after a while, What splendid teeth the beast had! He saw the beautiful teeth on the ugly decaying carcass. This gives us a clue that we should and must learn to see the grain of beauty in everything ugly, good in bad, truth in error. This quality of positivity must be practiced over time. It gives inner harmony and inner rhythm. The fifth is that the human being should acquire a certain open mind with regard to everything new that confronts them in the world. We could also say that they must never influence the future by what they are used to from the past. The words, quote, I don't believe it, close quote, must disappear completely from your mind. And if someone comes to you and says that the church tower has started leaning overnight, you must find a corner in your heart where you consider it possible that anything can really happen. That doesn't mean that you must become uncritical, just that nothing must seem impossible to you. A person who can do this can have a very significant effect on the physical and the etheric body. As a result, they enter into a rhythm that enables us to provide the astral body in the night with something that gives it meditation and concentration. For human beings will only gradually be guided to true, real theosophy when they understand in all instances why everything happens in this way and not otherwise. A person who is familiar with the mechanism of sleep also knows why such exercises have to be done. If a person takes these steps on the occult path for a while, under appropriate guidance, much becomes visible, tangible, experienceable to them, which would otherwise have escaped them. You must not believe that the dangers you encounter are not otherwise there in life, but you don't see them beforehand. You go through life, but you don't see them. We only learn to see what is around us in the spiritual world when we can penetrate 
into the higher realms. Something, for example, which the human being must and always will find on a higher level, and which they must endure, for which they must prepare themselves, is the guardian of the threshold. People usually have rather strange ideas about him. What is this guardian of the threshold? Today we will draw attention to this experience by skipping, so to speak, over some other things and experiences. You must be clear about what the human being usually does during their whole life. Let us take, in its real sense, the life in Kamaloka, the life after death, where human beings still have what we might call a certain inclination to physical and sensory existence. And let us compare this life with what happens immediately before the life in Kamaloka begins. A great memory tableau appears before the soul of the person who has just left the physical body. Then the life in Kamaloka begins. This is very singular. First of all, it has the peculiarity that the person goes through their experiences in reverse. In fact, they live their whole previous life in reverse, reliving the events that preceded their death up to their birth. In this way, we live through all the events in reverse and are finished when we arrive at our birth. We get to everything we have been through. Let us say you reach the age of sixty, and in your fortieth year you slapped someone in the face. When you come to that memory point in the reverse experience, you are drawn to that person, and a mark is made on you, so to speak, which is something strange. You feel the pain you caused. During your life you may have been guided by feelings of revenge. Now you feel what the person you took revenge on, or wanted to take revenge on, felt. You experience in the reverse experience the sensations and feelings you spread. Everything you experience there offers you a great deal of that which hinders your further development in the history of humanity. And without this stored marker of pain, you would progress more easily, because this inhibiting marker remains with you as a force. And by taking up these forces in reverse in Kamaloka, you will again be led by karma in the next life to use these forces to redeem the guilt, to make amends for compensation. So the longing begins there to make up for what you did wrong and you are drawn to it when the person lives with you again to make amends. This is how karma lives itself out. Another example. Four Vemic court judges sentenced someone to death and carried out the sentence. Why had this happened? When the lives of all these men were traced back, it turned out that in the previous life the condemned man had been a kind of chief and had sentenced these four to death. There, indeed, that trait which brought the five together was formed in the life in Kamaloka. Thus the human being always has the opportunity, during their life in Kamaloka, to absorb those forces as markers of restraint which lead them back into life to clear their debt. After the human being has passed through Devakan and is to enter physical life again, you have the counter-image of what happens immediately after death. Now you have a kind of foresight, a kind of preview of this life that now awaits you. What the person perceives there they naturally forget if they have no occult training. There are verifiable cases 
where people have been shocked by the preview and did not want to enter this life. It turned out that the etheric body did not enter fully into the physical body. In such cases, the etheric body of the head remained outside for a long time and caused a certain kind of mental deficiency. But you must not think that karma proceeds in such a way that we can pay off everything we caused to happen in a previous incarnation in the next one. It is not that simple. Sometimes you have to go through many, many incarnations. If you could look back at any given moment and see all the markers in your astral body that have to be paid off before you can make your ascent to certain heights of the occult, you would see your whole debt account. This now confronts the pupil and must confront him in an emblematic and tangible form, that which we still have to bear, that which still hinders us, unfulfilled karma. This is the guardian of the threshold. It can also confront us in a quite abnormal way. I know of a case where someone was incarnated at the end of the 18th century and at that time was afflicted with a quite extraordinary greed after certain deeds on the physical plane so that he had to go through a strange fate after death. He died. After a very long time he left the last remnant of the astral body. Usually the astral body falls away after a third of the time lived on earth and remains as an astral corpse until it decays. Such astral corpses constantly surround us and exert a bad influence on people. He could not stay long in the spiritual world, but soon got the urge to descend to the physical world again. Now a disaster happened to him, which, however, happens very rarely. It can happen when a person returns to physical existence that they find that their astral corpse is still present. This is very bad for them, for then their present astral body is what we might describe as saturated by the previous astral body, which is a terrible fate. They then have it constantly beside them as a double, and this is the abnormal kind of guardian of the threshold. This can happen in special exceptional cases. But in the case of someone who is on the path of occult development, it is necessary that at a certain moment they should see their ordinary astral body with all the markers of their unsettled karma. And they must seek to settle their unsettled karma by the means which are available for this purpose. This is the true encounter with the guardian of the threshold. None of this is said to make you fearful, but to give you an idea of what is called self-knowledge in the true sense of the word. This is twofold. First, it is the knowledge of what the true self has to carry out. Secondly, it is the knowledge of the higher self. But here, knowledge is something quite different. You can read in the Bible, and Adam knew Eve, his wife. That is an expression for procreation. Know yourself means fertilize yourself with the wisdom within you. Consider the soul as a female organ and fertilize yourself. If you want self-knowledge, then search within yourself. There you will recognize all your faults. If you want to know your higher self, then search outside yourself, for there world knowledge is self-knowledge. Everything is in the sun, for the sun is everything. S-U-N.
We have to get away from ourselves. People say to me, you tell us about development and the like, but we want elevation of the soul, of the feelings. Anyone who says that is their own enemy. It is not by gawping into ourselves, but by getting to know the world in all its parts, bit by bit, that we become selfless and can find knowledge of ourselves and of God. There is no worse phrase than this. We only need to look inside ourselves, but there we find only the lower self. We should seek outside with love, and we will find. I have known people who said, What do I need? I don't need anything because I am Atma. And even if they go on saying, quote, Atma, I am Atma, close quote, they do not bring it to consciousness because they know nothing more of Atma than that the word has four letters. Looking into ourselves only leads us to close ourselves off. We are nothing but a member of this world. The finger is only a finger because it remains attached to the organism. Detach it and it is no longer a finger. The finger does not separate itself from the organism. But the human being is so, in quotes, clever as to believe that they could separate themselves from the earth even though they would only have to be taken a few kilometers above the earth and they would perish. The human being, by their etheric and astral body, belongs to the sun, to the whole solar world. It is the greatest error to want to find the self in ourselves. Getting away from ourselves by immersing ourselves in all the details of the world, that is the correct thing to do. The person who fertilizes themselves in love and humility finds godliness, while the person who seeks God within them hardens themselves. So you see that we have much to learn if we really want to have knowledge of the esoteric path. And what matters is that we have the right thought about such matters. You do not need to think about it from morning till night, just as it is unnecessary always to say your own name to yourself. It is enough if you know the thought. There are thoughts without which the esotericist cannot be an esotericist. If they have them as they have their impulses, their motives in ordinary life, then these thoughts represent steps for them which lead them up to the supersensory plane of knowledge, represent for them a penetration into the wisdom of the world, an advance in knowledge toward love. The end of Lecture 2